0: Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federalist Society member today at fedsoc.org. Good morning and welcome to the Federalist Society's Practice Group Teleform webinar. As today, March 14th, 2022, we discuss the government's draft SEP policy statement. I'm Dean Reuter, Senior Vice President and General Counsel at the Federalist Society. Pleased to welcome you here today to our program. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of our expert today, and this is being recorded for use as a podcast and uh, will likely be transcribed and posted on our website. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome a single expert today, a uh, return guest to our teleforum webinar, Andre Ianku. He is a partner at Irel and Manila, but uh, almost as importantly, he's the former director of the Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, we're very pleased to have him talk in opening remarks for uh, several minutes. Um, and then I'll probably have some questions for him. Uh, but as always, we'll be looking to the audience for your questions. For that, please use the Q&A function at the bottom middle of your screen. Uh, we'll take those questions in no particular order, but uh, you can start submitting them anytime along, uh, along the, the way during our discussion and conversation with uh, Commissioner Iancu. Uh, with that, uh, Andre Iancu, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you, Dean. Uh, Great to be uh, with you again. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, Great privilege to be back with the Federalist Society. Uh, Once again, I remember fondly our meetings in person uh, some years ago, and hopefully we'll return to that uh, soon enough. But uh, yeah, so for today's topic, um, you uh, said in the opening uh, that it's about SEPs, and it certainly is, but what, what are those things? So it really deals with standard essential patents. In um, basic terms, these are patents and various other intellectual property protections for technology that is essential to the practice of a particular standard. So let me just back up for a second, Dean, and, and, and just first get a clear understanding of what's a standard. Right. So a technology standard is um, a set of technologies and how to practice them that um, everybody uh, has to conform to to get uh, to get uniformity across a particular area. So uh, take, for example, 5G, which is a very typical uh, standards that folks talk about uh, nowadays, uh, but even more simply, you know, the plugs that you uh, stick uh, any electrical device uh, in the wall. Those are standardized because you need interoperability of devices. Um, So in the United States, for example, the plugs have a certain shape. That is a standard. Interestingly enough, it's not an international standard. And we all know the problems that that causes, right? Every time we travel someplace overseas, back in the days when people still traveled, Uh, you have to carry these adapters so that because it's not standardized internationally, even though it's standardized locally. Different countries have different plugs. Well, wouldn't it be great to have (laughs) just one standard for that? When you talk about telecom like 5G, 4G, 5G, 6G, those are standards that are meant to be of international scope. uh, The world is more and more interdependent on international standards. And those standards are more and more important as time goes forward. We talk about the use of the internet of things uh, with all sorts of devices from all over the world plugging into the internet. Uh, or artificial intelligence, um, uh, machines learning on their own, and then operating uh, to some extent on their own, uh, self-driving vehicles of various sorts. Uh, all of these things uh, are becoming more and more standardized. Um, other areas of technology that are really important for standardization is video compression, so that uh, uh, videos such as this one, for example, uh, but shows on TV, whatever, can be sent by the producer um, in a compressed format, received over the airwaves or through the internet at your home, and then expanded and played back so that you can see it. And remember, you know, uh, the 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 uh, producer has to send it uh, in a format that the receipt at home understands it. And whether you're at your house or at the hotel or traveling someplace, you want the same type of technology to be able to talk to each other. So standards and standard-based technology is critically important and is becoming more and more important for our economy. So that's point number one. Point number two, patents and other intellectual property are critically important to the development of standards. Why is that? This is especially true here in the United States. We are a free market-based economy. So what incentivizes innovation in the United States? Um, So the market needs to be able to invest in the technologies of the future, to take risks, to bring those to bear. and, um, and, And when it comes to standards, you take the risk that you're going to develop a technology that may later not be adopted by the standard. So the way it works is, you know, countries come together in standard uh, setting organizations and they discuss which set of technological tools should be adopted for the next standard. So 6G, 7G, whose standards, whose technology is going to be adopted for that companies need to develop those technologies and submit them to the standards organizations for adoption they might not succeed they might not be adopted you make all these investments you do all the development and yet it doesn't get adopted but if it does so that's a risk but if it does get adopted you want to make sure that you're being properly compensated this is the key for for the development of standards in a free market economy. Think about it the way it is in China and other centralized economies. There the centralized Chinese Communist Party can dictate we're going to develop five new technologies for a particular standard and whatever happens happens. We cannot make such a we cannot issue such dictates here in the United States. So we need the appropriate incentives and the appropriate level of protections in the United States and other free market economies in order for companies to make the necessary investments and try hard to get their technologies adopted in the standards organizations. Having the appropriate policies when it comes to these intellectual property protections for standards is critically important. So number one, as I said, companies have to be incentivized. At the same time, to balance on the other side, you want to make sure that once a technology is adopted, and the patent the the technology developer has patents that protects that technology, that the patent owner does not freeze out the market, that the patent owner does not, in technical terms, hold up the market. If a standard has to be practiced, you have to enable implementers, companies implementing the standard, to actually practice it. So you want to make sure that you don't have a system that is unbalanced and prevents the implementation of a standard once adopted. So that's why balance is critically important. On the one hand, you have to have the right level of incentives and protections to create those technologies in the first place here in the United States, get them adopted by the international standard organizations. And at the same time, make sure that they are not overbearing such that the implementers cannot actually apply the technologies in products going forward. So getting that balance right is key. So what does the government do to make sure that that balance is right? One thing the government could do is nothing. One thing the government could do is stay out of it and not dictate policies when it comes to this particular balance and let the market dictate those policies, markets, the courts, et cetera. And for the longest time, that's been the case. For the longest time, there had not been any specific government issued policy when it comes to standard essential patents. That's true until 2013. In 2013, the administration in a joint statement from the Department of Justice Antitrust Division and the USPTO issued its first policy statement the so 2013 policy tried to make the appropriate balance as between incentivizing technology developers and implementers of those uh, technologies. That statement said that it is primarily concerned with what it sees in the market, what the government saw in the market at that time as a hold up behavior from patent owners. The statement issued Uh, with various positions on both sides. But in the years after that statement, courts interpreted it such that it became a de facto prohibition. The statement was read as a de facto prohibition against the use of injunctions and other types of remedies when it comes to the enforcement of patents essential to a standard. So what does that mean? That means that if you have a standard essential patents and an implementer uses your technology and refuses to pay appropriate fees for that technology, the patent owner can file a lawsuit against the implementer of the technology. What are the remedies for that? Is it just money? Or can you also, you can you also ask the court to issue an injunction to stop the implementer from putting that technology out altogether? The 2013 statement was effectively read as a de facto prohibition against the use of injunctions. And we can talk about the problems that that creates in the system, but we saw it as a significant concern. So in 2019, when I was the director of the USPTO, got together with the head of DOJ Antitrust and NIST, so three organizations, three government agencies, and we issued a 2019 policy statement that that corrected that uh, imbalance. And we effectively said, look, standard essential patents are patents like all other patents and should be entitled to all the remedies that all other patents are entitled to. And depending on the facts and circumstances of any particular case, courts are very well equipped to make the decisions as to the remedies in any particular case, including a standard essential patent case. So we said injunctions are appropriate if courts so determine, as well as any other remedy under the particular uh, facts of that case. And the particular example we gave in 2019 was if the implementer holds out and behaves bad in bad faith during negotiations for license to standard essential patents, then courts could issue an injunction. And we can come back, Dean, and talk about the reasoning behind all of that. So that was in 2019. Two years later, 2021, there's a new administration and President Biden issued a, a, an executive order in, in the summer of last year Asking for on many issues, but one of the points of the executive order was to ask the Department of Justice and the Department of Commerce to take a look uh, at the 2019 statement and see if there uh, if if there is a need to revise that once again. And uh, sure enough, uh, they did that, and they thought that yes, it's time to revise once again. Uh, surprising results. Uh, so they issued in uh, December of uh, 2021 a draft revision and asked the public for comment. Uh, the comment period closed in February of this year, so just last month. They received several hundred comments um, from the public and now we will see what happens. Presumably the government agencies are reviewing those comments and we will see what they do next. So with that background, let me stop there, Dean, and turn it
0: over to you for uh, questions or comments. Great. Thank thank you so much. And uh, a reminder to the audience to use the Q&A function at the bottom of the screen if you have a question. Uh, And while we're Waiting for audience questions. This raises your, your presentation raises a lot of questions in my mind. Um, you, you you've you've covered a lot of territory, and I appreciate the background, um, both on what SEPs are and where we are in this uh, notice and comment uh, uh, proceeding. Um, can you say a little bit more about any national security implications? Uh, you mentioned China. Um, patents are a huge deal, um, as far as I know, uh, from from a position of a novice. Um, can Can you address that a little bit? Sure. So there are
1: huge uh, international implications here, national uh, and national security issues. Standards-based technologies are critical to the fourth industrial revolution and the technologies of the future, like I mentioned, whether it's telecommunications like 4G, 5G, we're well past 4G, frankly, we're actually past 5G as well, 6G and beyond internet of things, autonomous vehicles, artificial intelligence, and so on. And what we want to make sure is that the United States remains at the forefront of those technologies, For the United States to remain at the forefront, the United States needs to innovate in the critical technologies of the future. Well, we are being faced with a huge challenge from China and other countries when it comes to innovation in the technologies of the future. The Chinese have figured out that for them, and not just the Chinese, by the way, many other countries, big, small, medium, But let's focus on China because it's one of our major competitors right now. They have figured out that for them to be uh, competitive, both economically, militarily, and everything else, they need to innovate. And they have focused in their Made in China 2025 and beyond plans. They have focused on the key technologies of the future. And they have said, all the way to the highest levels in their government, they said that those who control the standards, control the future. And they understand that. And it is true. Think about it. If we by definition, if we have an international standard, like 5G and 6G, then by definition, we all have to practice it, all of our phones, these things that all of us carry uh, with us uh, religiously, as I said, television transmission, what whatever, they will be applicable across the world what would we rather have would we rather have technology that is driven by China by the Chinese Communist Party would we rather have technol- artificial intelligence machine learning technology whatever it might be that's controlled by the Chinese government uh, by the Chinese government and uh, and others or would we rather have the United States innovate in these areas and dictate or lead those technological standards into the future? I think the obvious answer, the answer is obvious for all of us who want, you know, who who are in favor of uh, freedom and democracy. We want technology to be driven from uh, companies that operate in a free market system uh, and from democratic countries and especially for us here in the United States from the United States for the United States as a free market economy to lead in these areas, we need to innovate in those areas and we need to have the appropriate free market incentives for that innovation. I can't emphasize enough how critically important it is for the United States to keep innovating. And here's the thing, Dean, everybody agrees that innovation is important. The problem is that not everybody agrees that intellectual property is a key ingredient to that innovation. That connection is missing. And our legislators and our government officials need to understand that in the United States and any other free market economy, you don't have that many levers to pull to incentivize the innovation in risky technologies. By definition, the technologies of the future are risky. And as I said, that's especially true with standards because you don't know, after all the investment that that standard, that technology will be adopted in the standard. So you take this huge risk. There has to be a protection and an incentive for that risk that you've taken, if in fact you succeed. Our free market is willing to take a chance and fail. That's what entrepreneurship is all about. But they are not willing to take a risk and fail even if they succeed. There has to be a payday at the end of the day in case of success. And if you don't have intellectual property protection, our free market will not invest at the same levels that are needed to compete with a centralized Chinese Communist Party that doesn't have this free market issue.
0: Yeah. Let me pick up, if I could, on one thing you said there, because to, to me and maybe challenge you a little bit or get you get you to make the best case possible on the other side. It seems intuitively obvious that innovation is linked to IP rights, at least from my position as a, as a non-expert, axiomatic even. What's the I mean, you mentioned people who don't who don't link Innovation and intellectual property and the synergies, I guess, between those. What's their best case argument for for disaggregating those two concepts? Where does, if not from intellectual property protection, where does innovation come from? Is it just spontaneous? Is it uh, just people who are out to make the world better, whether or not there's a payoff at the end?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, as it happens, Dean, there is a school of thought and it's a significant school of thought. That innovation just happens. I human ideas just happen. Humans will think that's what we do. And we're gonna be creative. That's the nature of hum that's that's the nature of a human being. So we're gonna be thinking, we're gonna be creative, we're gonna create stuff. And innovation just happens. Yeah. And 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 then patents are an afterthought by those clever enough who, after they've innovated, they want to pull, pull up the ladder behind them. I don't want to underestimate this school of thought. It's, it's very prevalent. It's especially prevalent in academia. And it's not new. This goes back to the beginning of intellectual property protections hundreds of years ago. There is always a tension between uh, the free flow of ideas and the protection with uh, uh, of ideas in the form of a property right and from the f- it was so important that tension was recognized by our founding fathers think about the fact that they put it in the constitution right in article 1 section 8 clause 8 there is the intellectual property clause
0: mm-hmm.
1: that gives exclusive rights to inventors and authors right so that's the foundation for the patent and the copyright system they thought They had to overcome this tension in the constitution itself. They didn't put physical property rights in the constitution. There is no clause that says you're entitled to your piece of land, but they put it on intellectual property rights to to resolve this tension. And there's writings from Jefferson and the like that show this tension. And um, now, now I very much believe, um, you know, that, that, the answer after all these these years is clear you cannot compete in a free market economy without these protections or incentives but the bottom line is that no but not, not everybody agrees yeah,
0: interesting. Does that school of thought, and, and you can just say yes or no to this if if, if possible, um, does that school of thought concede that without patents and IP protection, even if humans are by nature inventive, you might get a level of of innovation at 10, but with patent protection, you get eleven or something higher?
1: No. No, I think it's the other way. So, yeah. so the opposite school of thought thinks that patents act as a barrier to innovation, as opposed to a catalyst to innovation. Again, ideas will just happen, they say, yeah. and then the patents block further follow on ideas. Um, now, what I always say publicly is show me the evidence, because humanity does not know progress to the level that we have come to expect here without a robust patent system, okay? When this country was founded in 1776, the state of humanity in 1776, just 200 some years ago, was basically the same as in antiquity, okay? You, you basically were going around on horseback, you, uh, you, you illuminated the room with candlelight, you, you know, if you wanted to communicate something at a distance, you had to, to send Paul Revere on horseback. You, you know, if you needed anesthesia, the best you could do is a shot of whiskey. I'm not kidding about these things. It's just 200 years ago, even though humanity has been around for thousands or tens of thousands of years. So all the progress we have made, now lots of things have come together, but the fact is that everything that we know from a technological development point of view has happened at the same time as a robust patent system. So I want to know the evidence. If you want to undo the system, yeah. folks have to come and prove that, we, that this stuff can happen in a free market economy without intellectual property protection. This is so critical for standards-based technologies uh, because it adds another layer that technology is adopted in a standard that's in wide use uh, across the world, but it is also true in everything else. We Thanks. see it in we see it in the development of pharmaceuticals, um, and the same arguments are being made on the other side there, and it's just as dangerous there. It's
0: across the board. We're starting to get some questions in the Q and A, and uh, I'll remind the other guests to to, to put their questions there, the Q and A, at the bottom of your screen. In terms of the balance between the, the patent owners and those who want to license it or use the patent. Um, can you say just a little bit about, I, I'm under the impression that the patent owners, if it's a standard essential patent, if it's essential, uh, you know, like the, the shape of this USB cord, uh, the holder of the patent has some obligation to deal fairly with people that want to use that standard essential patent. Is that correct? And what does that look like? And what does that, what does that do in terms of the balance of power between those two entities?
1: Uh, that is correct, except for your example it is driving me crazy. Like, with every new phone I buy, I have to buy a different plug. I, I really wish that that would become standardized <laughs> just from the convenience point of view. But it is true for the phone, like, and how the phone transmits, uh, you know, so that I can type a text in here and it shows up on your phone, no matter what your phone is, basically. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, once a standard is a, is adopted, you have an obligation, uh, the patent owner for that technology and that standard. You have an obligation to deal fairly with the implementers of that technology. So, what the requirement is is that if you're a patent owner on that technology, is that you license it out on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. It's called friend, fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. You have to engage in a negotiation. And you cannot deny a license if the license is on fair, reasonable, and non discriminatory terms. So, there are two terms that are being used in this area. One is called hold up. So, the patent owner is not permitted to hold up the implementation of that standard once that standard is adopted. So, just because I have a patent, I cannot say, too bad. You're excluded no matter what you're offering me. You're excluded because I don't like you. I cannot hold you up if you're offering me a fair response, a fair license. On the other side of this, the implementer can hold out, okay, and they should not be allowed to do that either. So what does that mean? So an implementer can say, look, I'm going to practice your standard anyway, and I'm not paying you no matter what. You want a dollar a unit, I'm going to give you no more than a penny a unit. And I don't care uh, because I'm big. I'm a big implementer. I'm a big manufacturer of phones, for example, or whatever. So I don't care. So I'm going to hold out. And if you want, you can sue me. It's going to take you millions of dollars to prosecute that lawsuit uh, it will take you years to prosecute that lawsuit, and then we'll see what happens at the end. And if I lose, I'll just pay you then. That's called hold out. Um, so that's the balance that we must we must ensure as policymakers. We must ensure that that balance is appropriately stricken, so, right. uh, so that
0: you don't have either hold out or hold up. Yeah, and you can see the importance immediately of of an injunction in that process in terms of letting the 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 time, uh, the clock continue to run while somebody's practicing the patent. Let me go to the, the Q&A here again. If you have a question, use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. This is, a, I think, a, a pretty fundamental question. I probably should have asked it earlier. But what role does the government play in selecting standards? The, the, does the government play a direct role or is that uh, the industry players that actually set the standards?
1: So in the United States, it's a private industry usually that says the standards. Now, government does play a role in participating in many of the standard development committees, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Uh, A division of the Department of Commerce, an agency of the Department of Commerce uh, has uh, the lead, uh, the government lead on that. So they participate, they can organize, they can, uh, you know, they can incentivize. But the uh, private companies are the ones that develop that technology and come to the meetings and present that technology for adoption by the standard setting organization. Now that's in the United States. Uh, that's not true in China, obviously. Now, you know, uh, the Chinese, it's a centralized uh, uh, system. So the Chinese government has a much heavier role. They can dispatch lots of companies, lots of technologies, lots of engineers to
0: these meetings. So the meetings many times are unbalanced as a result. Good. A second question from the audience, and that's uh, asking you to comment further on the effects of the monetary incentives for standards-based innovations when the ability to obtain an object an, an injunction is removed, such that only monetary damages, money damages, are available, and vice versa. What what are the the power dynamics there?
1: Yeah. Okay. So look, here's an arg- Here's the main argument on the other side. the The other side who who've Uh, is opposed to injunctions they argue the following they say that the patent owner is obligated to provide a license on fair reasonable and non-discriminatory terms you're obligated to provide a license to those who want to implement the technology which is true so they say it's just a question of money by definition uh, once your technology has been adopted you have accepted the patent owner has accepted that they that, that they will license out the technology. You have promised not to hold people out, to lock people out and to allow them to practice, because that's why you're contributing your technology to the license. And that's the quid pro quo. So it's just a question of money. And that means what is a fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory license? That's all it that matters. That's all that matters. So you should not be entitled to obtain through judicial proceedings that that you cannot obtain on your own through negotiations. So you should not be allowed to have a court lock somebody out if you yourself cannot lock somebody out. That's the argument. The problem with that argument is that that leads to perverse incentives and really bad behavior. So if I am an implementer and I know for a fact that, I can never be locked out, either by the patent owner or through the court, no matter what I do. And I know for a fact that worse comes to worse, at the end of the process here, so you sue me, take five years, spend millions of dollars, but worse comes to worse, at the end of that process, I'll just have to pay the money damages that I would have paid anyway. Why not take a chance every single time? Not pay, in other words, hold out, not pay, and litigate maybe i win and if i don't win i'll owe the same thing i would have owed 5 years ago anyway so 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 you have you want to make sure that you don't have a system that creates these perverse incentives so now if a, an implementer holds out and behaves in bad faith during during the frand negotiations well then perhaps frand doesn't apply at all if the implementer says you know, I understand that you have to license it to me on friend terms, but I'm rejecting the friend framework. Then all that, all that is out. And now we are in, in regular patents terms, uh, patent policy uh, terms. So then all the remedies, including an injunction, uh, should
0: apply. Interesting, interesting. So reverting now to, that brings us up to the present day, I think a little bit with regard to the comments, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at them, they haven't they haven't closed that long ago, but comments on the new proposal, how is industry lining up? Um, where, who, who are the pros and who are the cons in favor of injunctions versus opposed? And has that changed at all in the different iterations of this policy? You mentioned it started in 2013 and then uh, you guys uh, did something in 2019 and now we have another revision. And in answering that, I've always been taught that business really hates uncertainty of uh, of all forms. And to me, if you're flip-flopping—I don't want to say flip-flopping—but if you're going in different directions in one administration and then reversing course and reversing course again, to me that sounds like uncertainty. So if you could address that whole batch of issues as you as you as your answer,
1: yeah, there's a whole there's a host of issues there, uh, Dean. So uh, the the last point is very important, which is um, you know patents are a form of property. And uh, and it's, it's 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 an investment mechanism. It's an investment tool. Um, you 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 know. I've always said I agree with you that uh, consistency of that uh, of that uh, monetary tool is really important in patents, just as it is, just as it is for the for the dollar. Imagine if the dollar had one value. Uh, uh, in one administration and a completely different value in a different administration. Now, of course, the dollar varies with inflation and whatnot, but we can see how destabilizing high rates of inflation is even there. Um, But if you're going to completely flip-flop, that can cause serious problems. People need to know how to invest Patents last twenty years from the date of filing. That's a long time. You need to know how, where to put your money uh, to build technologies around it. Uh, you need which you need to know how to avoid technology if you're certain patents in in, in you know uh, if you're on the implementer side. Critically important. So you know we had the policy in twenty thirteen. We corrected it in twenty nineteen. We corrected its in, its understanding in twenty nineteen. We didn't reject the 2013 policy. What we said was that it was misunderstood and misapplied. And I firmly believe that that's true. And we corrected it to its original intent. Because remember, even the 2013 policy statement said that injunctions are appropriate if uh, in certain circumstances. And now not even two years later, they want to change it again. And where is the evidence? Is there some documented evidence that the 2019 policy is not working out that you know that patent owners are behaving in predatory ways with hold up situations where is the evidence the 2021 proposed policies is silent on any evidence of nefarious conduct it just makes an academic presumption that there could be but there is no actual evidence so if you're going to engage in the policy flip-flop, you have to demonstrate that there is a critical need for that change. And that hasn't been shown here. And to be frank, I would say that if we're gonna flip-flop again, uh, if we're gonna change the policy again, uh, then uh, within two years, uh, then it might as well just abolish it completely, have the government get out of this whole business. Because look, For the longest time, we didn't have a policy. As I said, until 2013, we didn't have a policy. So if we're going to have a policy, it's got to be more stable. But if we cannot get ourselves to have a stable policy, then we might as well have the government out of it completely. To to the rest of your question, what's the lineup in industry? Well, look, as you would expect, uh, generally speaking, large implementers of technology, so those that on balance implement more than innovate uh, for standards-based technologies uh, want a change and they do not want injunctions at all or ever. So if you look at the hundreds of comments that have come in in February, what you basically see, and I'm generalizing a little bit, but what you basically see are the large big tech companies uh, in favor of the 2021 proposal. There are uh, industry groups uh, as well. So industry groups that are driven by the large big tech companies. There are some automobile companies there as well because automobiles, to some extent, are big computers on wheels nowadays. And China, believe it or not, the Chinese, some Chinese IP association or the Chinese Patent Lawyers Association put in a comment uh, favoring the 2021 policy. So what you basically have is big tech and China in favor of this. I actually had to, to double check the Chinese entry. I thought it was a joke that actually that 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 would you know, that somebody saying that somebody was kidding when they told me that uh, that the Chinese put in. A comment in favor of this. But no, it's true. So that's who you have in, in favor. Uh, on the other side, you have companies um, that on balance innovate more than they implement, that, uh, that get more patents uh, than they use. Um, so you have a lot of uh, small and medium enterprises that depend heavily on IP Uh, Because if you're a startup or a small uh, or medium company, in order to compete, you really need IP. Uh, So more of them um, uh, against the statement. Uh, Large innovators are against the statement. Many, many former government officials are against the 2021 statement. And in fact, I was a signatory to a statement where I was joined by my predecessors in the Obama administration, and so both at PTO NIST and DOJ so that statement opposing the 2021 position was uh myself uh so all the PTO heads from Obama and Trump all the NIST heads from Obama and Trump and the uh and, and then one head of DOJ antitrust from Obama and one head of DOj antitrust from Trump, so eight of us all against nobody in favor, no former official in favor. We have four senators or three senators i think uh, i think three senators against so Senator tillis coons and Hirono. no senators in favor. There were four congress uh, members of Congress from California um, in favor of the twenty one uh, statements. So, folks who represent the you know the districts generally from where big tech uh, comes from. So, it makes some some sense there. So, that's generally the lineup. Um, but it's hundreds of comments. So, you know, I'm
0: over generalizing a little bit. Yeah. So now, in terms of next steps going forward. How are these comments I- incorporated into anything that becomes the, the final work product? And actually, before we go there, let me ask you about the former officials. I'm intrigued by that, that there are eight former officials at those levels through through the Obama administration and Trump administration who seem unanimous in this versus, I suppose, three current officials um, who head each of these agencies. H- has there been a change I mean, I know there's been a change in personnel at the top, but has there been a a change in in the uh, in the environment that would indicate this is this is needed? And what can you say about those officials who are putting this forward?
1: Yeah. So, first of all, there's only one of those three agencies have a confirmed political appointee at this point. So only the head of the Department of Justice Antitrust Division has been appointed by President Biden and confirmed by the Senate. The uh, heads of PTO and IST have been nominated, but not yet confirmed by the Senate. So they're not in their seats and they have not yet contributed to the statement. So this is, was was one of the big concerns that We mentioned in our, the former officials mentioned in our statement, you've got to give time for the appointed uh, experts to be in their seats and contribute their expert views, right? The head of the, you know, the undersecretary for IP is not there. So there is no uh, IP view represented uh, from a political nominee yet. Same thing from the standards. So this is standard essential patents. So the head of the standards organization is not yet confirmed, and the head of the patents
0: organization is not yet confirmed. Yet- well, and can, can I ask, I think you've answered this question, but if they're not yet confirmed, even though they've been nominated, they're prohibited from participating in this process. Right. So it's not as if they're informally getting their input. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: no, you, you, they, uh, well, they could have theoretically commented, uh, like every other. They're just a regular citizen, but they have they've been silent, obviously.
0: So is this being driven? Then I guess it's the head of the Department of Justice Antitrust Division who has been confirmed. Are they the big dog in this new proposal? Or are they the ones driving it? Is it stat? Is it supported by staff at PTO and NIST? Or what are they? What are your insights there as to why this is moving forward? Is there in the in the process itself has there been a a declamation of the need for this on such a, I guess, accelerated time frame, or however you describe that.
1: Look, I I, I don't want to speculate. I don't really know um, yeah. exactly the inner workings, obviously, since I'm a private citizen now. But you can read between the lines, like everyone else. There's one political agent, one political appointee here that uh, of the three. Uh, the other two are. Currently being led by uh, career officials, but the bigger overhang, oh, the, the bigger picture here, Dean, is that this is the result of an executive order from the White House. So this was, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, um, the antecedent basis of this was an executive order from President Biden that was billed as a pro-competitive executive order. In other words as an executive order that is meant to increase competition in the United States and to rein in the monopolistic tendencies of big tech companies. And there are many, many provisions in the executive order. This one on uh, standard essential patents is just one small component of the much bigger executive order. What's really interesting, though, is that this portion of the executive order on standard essential patents would have the exact opposite effect of what is intended by the overall theme of the executive order. If the Biden administration wants to rein in big tech and their monopolistic tendencies, they should ask themselves, why is it that it is basically only big tech companies and their surrogates that and and the Chinese patent system (laughs) that is supporting their proposed change.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. Can I ask uh, two factual questions? The number of the executive order, if you you know that off the top of your head, which executive order it is, if you don't, how explicit is this? You mentioned this phrase that's being used to, to push this policy forward. I mean, does it say revisit the injunction policy, revisit the 2019 statement, or is it more broad than that? Uh, I am
1: unfortunately don't know it. I'm sure I can find it easily, but uh, I'm reluctant okay. to do it while I'm talking to you. But it's, it's not that specific. Uh, frankly, it just says that it directs the Department of Justice and the Department of Commerce. So basically where the three agencies are headed, uh, located to take a look and assess whether a change is needed. It doesn't say you must make the change. Um, and frankly, I would urge the three agencies in light of the comments that have been received to uh, to to uh, to think carefully and proceed with extreme caution before effecting a change. And at the very minimum, I urge the three agencies to wait for the political appointees at the PTO and at NIST before they affect a change on such important issues. Look, it is exactly right now when we are feeling as a nation, the importance of US based innovation. It is exactly right now when we feel what it means to be dependent on the supply of critical technologies such as semiconductor chips and so many other things on foreign nations. This is right now when we have to all say to ourselves, especially our policymakers, what can we do to increase innovation in the United States? And to the leaders of the three agencies, I say, listen to the experts. It is not a coincidence that all of the PTO heads from both Obama terms and Trump, all of the NIST, all of the standards heads, all of them from Obama two terms, and Trump. And two of the DOJ folks, bipartisan, all of us, think that this would be a grave mistake. And by the way, there is another statement that was put out through CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank, bipartisan think tank in Washington, that has uh, a bunch of other officials, former officials there, from, uh, from the national security uh, parts of the administration. They are all opposed and urging extreme caution here, and there is none of them on the other side in support. Folks in the current administration should ask themselves, why is this the lineup? Why is it that it's their, their proposal is being supported by big tech and China, yet it is opposed by all the former experts in bipartisan administrations on these issues?
0: Yeah, so I, I heard you urge them to, to wait for the confirmation of, of the other two officials. What are the next steps in terms of timing? I mean, um, is, it, is it possible just to shut down? Them? I, I suppose the government could at this point do nothing or they could revise based on comments or they could uh, go forward. And I did hear you urge they at least hold this in abeyance. But can you talk about the next steps uh, going forward?
1: Yeah, so one thing would be for the government to do nothing, uh, which means de facto you're leaving in place the 2019 statement, which is working just fine. There are no there's no evidence, as I said, and the state the 2021 proposal does not cite any evidence that there is some breakdown in the system. By the way, the 2019 statement is in line with our uh, European trade partners and Asian trade partners, the modern free market economies. Have policies on standard essential patents that are similar to the 2019 position, um, and other countries are moving in that in that same direction. So uh, one option would be just let it be. It seems to be working just fine. Yeah. Um, uh, at a minimum, wait for the new folks to come to be confirmed, the experts, and then have another discussion and see if uh, the 20. 20- 21 draft can be if you're going to make a change, you, you know, at least make some uh, amendments to what you have proposed. The third option, Dean, is for the government to say we're pulling out completely. We're going to pull out the 2019 statement, but not put the new one in. That's another option. And a few of the comments suggest that they say that if you're going to if you if you don't like the 2019 statement, just get out of it completely. Because we as an industry, some of the comments say we cannot make business decisions if you're gonna if you're gonna make changes this often. Yeah. But let me mention one more thing. The 2021 statement, in addition to effectively prohibiting injunctions, has lots of other problems. One of them is that it prescribes a framework for negotiations between the patent owners. And the patent impl- and the technology implementers to arrive at a an appropriate uh, license agreement. Think about it. The government, okay, and by the way, effectively unelected officials, okay, is issuing prescribing to industry to the experts in industry a framework. I say, and the. The, uh, um, the comment statement, the formal comment that the former officials put in, we say, let industry dictate how it should negotiate. They know best. And it's different from company to company. It's different from industry to industry. How you negotiate in the telecom industry, like 5G is going to be different from how you negotiate in video transmission industries, for example, mm-hmm. uh, the dynamics are different, the players are different, the international participants are different. Why would government prescribe a rigid framework uh, is uh, is beyond me. So at a minimum, if you're going to make a change, at the very, very minimum, you've got to take that out and let industry
0: run its own business. Interesting. I don't see any more questions in the Q&A from our audience. We've got a few minutes left. So before we uh, call, call the curtain on this, I want to give you a minute or two to wrap up and express any final thoughts. You've been pretty clear so far, but uh, take a minute or two and, and, and wrap up if you could.
1: Absolutely. So look, uh, uh, I, I believe very strongly that uh, intellectual property protections are key uh, to uh, innovation, In general, but in particular for innovation in standards-based technologies. For intellectual property to be successful, it must be predictable, it must be reliable, and the system needs to avoid the ups and downs uh, that are being suggested here. In addition, intellectual property protections to be effective, they need to be meaningfully enforceable. Otherwise, it is just a nice piece of paper with a beautiful ribbon from the patent office that might decorate your office. Other than that, in order to have a meaningful property right, you need to be able to enforce it. And you need to be able to enforce it against people who are violating that intellectual property rights. The US government cannot have a policy that, has, that, that, that removes all the teeth from its intellectual property system, because at that point, you might as well not have a system altogether. And that is something the United States categorically cannot afford. Uh, so with that, you know, as I said earlier, I very much uh, urge the three agencies to think carefully, listen to industry, listen to experts, and wait for the experts
0: in the particular agencies who are responsible for these issues. Terrific, well, great program, uh, Andre. I thank you for your time and for your thoughtfulness on this. Uh, It seems like a sort of first year law school uh, notion that a right without a remedy really isn't much of a right at all. Um, So I appreciate you shining some light on this. I look forward to having you back on a future program. We will post this online for people who wanna revisit it and circulate it. Uh, my thanks to Andre Yanku for his time. I also want to thank the audience for their time and for their questions. A reminder to our audience to check your uh, emails and our website for upcoming programs, which will happen probably later today. I haven't looked myself, but um, until the next program, we are adjourned. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's Practice Groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.